Death is not the end. Your body has already done a lot of changing. But that's only the beginning. The beginning of the new flesh. To become the new flesh, you first have to kill the old flesh. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to let your body die. Not with the new flesh. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Well, 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 what's up, my brother? We are here for another episode, this time with David Cronenberg. We're one of the freaking geniuses of sci-fi. So right. <laughs> I know, man. I don't know how we ne- we haven't gotten around to doing Cronenberg sooner, or really even talked about doing Cronenberg sooner than this. But like, once the idea came up, it was both like a, we were both immediately like, "Oh, duh, that's obvious." I know. It's- this is obviously a really exciting one. I think our fans will really like this one too. I think Cronenberg is one of the biggest cult following directors of all time, possibly the biggest cult following director of all time. So at least the people who get him are going to love this episode. Yeah. And you know, what's crazy is that I am one of those people who, uh, who has totally slept on him for so long. Like I, you know, one of my favorite movies and I, I can't wait to talk about it, but one of my favorite movies when I was younger was scanners. And I just happened to see that movie to, to actually see it in the theaters to where I was like, what the, it blew my <laughs> mind like like heavy metal did, you know? And of course I saw The Fly, but when I started going through like his list, after we agreed to talk to talk about it, after, you know, I went through the list of things that he's done, even recently, that oh, yeah. I was like, oh my, this guy is a genius. No a question. literal genius, man, yeah. And it's fun to go back, right, to watch these movies. This episode really works for me, uh, like, timeline-wise, because not too long ago, my wife got interested in David Cronenberg. I can't mm. remember which movie it was that we saw that, like, turned her on to the idea of watching all the rest of them. I think it might have been The Fly. But then after that, she was like, okay, we've got to watch the rest of this director's movies. And we started all the way in the 70s. You know, some of them are really difficult to find, and you can't get a hold of them. And... We weighted them based on preference, too. You know, it wasn't just like, we're going to watch every one of his movies in a row. We just kind of started with his early films and watched some of his early ones, some of his later ones. And going through it, it really does blow my mind how creative, intelligent, resourceful. That's a really a word I'd like to use to describe this director is just super resourceful. I'm so glad you said that, dude, because I agree. As I was watching the films, I was like, this guy is... You know, it's like writing a novel, you can write whatever you want. But when you have the constraints of a budget, you know, to make things happen, especially when you're talking about the 70s, when, you know, there was was only practical, right? Right. Right. And so practical effects, I mean, what he pulled off and what came out of his brain, I was like, this is just insane. This is so cool. So, yeah, very resourceful. Before we jump in, what have you been up to, man? What's new? What's going on? Uh, the magazine is still kind of in limbo right now. Issue uh, 11 and Infinite Horrors number one. I think I might have mentioned on the last episode that the um, printers kind of screwed us up right at the last minute. Mm-hmm. We've had to kind of like 
scramble, like we, I mean me, I'm having to kind of scramble and figure out what to do now. But I've reached out to a couple of other printers and I've gotten some good quotes on the, the job, mm-hmm. you know, fair, what I consider fair quotes. But so far, the only printer that's gotten back to me has told me that their timeline to print is like three months. Oh, yeah. So that really, dude. like, it really puts me in a kind of an awkward position because, you know, a lot of people pre-pay for their magazines. They, they, they're either subscribers or they just order a pre-sale. And so they've mm-hmm. already been waiting a while. And then to be like, oh, by the way, sorry, it'll be another three months before, you know, in subscribers, a whole nother subscription period would have passed. You know, they'd be a whole period behind at that point before they got that issue. You know, nobody ever said being an independent publisher was going to be easy. So I'm, I'm troubleshooting. I'm troubleshooting. Yeah. And let's see. Uh, well, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be such a learning experience, you know, to go through, you know, it's. I, I think it's one thing to go through being a, you know, whatever it is that you do, whatever your trade is or your business is, to go through that in like good times, but where you really probably learn like what it really means to have a trade is to go through good and bad times, then good, then bad, you know, those cycles, no those cycles where you're yeah, like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> well, you know, if I could weather this storm, you know, I see, I do see sunshine on the horizon. No, that's what I mean. Yeah. A bunch of copies of both magazines were ordered through Diamond Distributors. So, you know, once I can get them printed and send them off, I'll get a good size check from Diamond and it'll kind of put me back on my feet again, you know, get everything sorted mm-hmm. out. You know, but right now, you know, I've got to pay for a lot of stuff. I got to pay for all this printing. I got to also pay for all the rewards from the Kickstarter. And, you know, it's, tax season too. You know, I hate to gripe about taxes, but it, they, they're, <laughs> the, the, the bill is there and it is not small. But, uh, you know, otherwise, Never everything, everything's going fine because this is all happening right now. And I'm just kind of troubleshooting and it's really all I've got to do on my day to day because I finished my novel or at least the draft I was working on. I've got that one last draft left. And so I've got some people reading it and it's kind of cool to sit back and you know, rest on that a little bit, not have to be like, okay, I got to finish. I got to finish every day. Yeah. Now I'm thinking of writing short stories to pass the time. Oh, that's great. So what about you, dude? What are you up to? I'm still in London. It was snowing this morning. <laughs> it, um, are you, are you, what are you, eat, what are you the, eating? I'm eating some almond butter right now. <laughs> I'm sitting here going, you know, it's, it's crazy because it's crazy because like I'm kind of like learning what it means to be cold in Europe. Like people oh, don't use yeah. heat a lot. And so you, everyone layers inside their house. I'm not used to that. Right. I'm a spoiled American. What's the uh, temperature? I'm like turn up there where you are. I mean, it snowed today. I oh. mean, it was like 30 degrees. It's a little warmer right now. It's probably 40, but you know, we walked to the, we walked into downtown London and we walked to the 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 train station near my daughter's house, and that was freezing. And um, <laughs> I just wasn't bundled warm enough. You know, I'm not used to like this cold weather. So um, I'm acclimated to that, and I'm drinking. I'm sitting here drinking tea and having a spoonful of almond butter. I've got like really hot tea all the time, man. I don't do caffeine like after like 12, it keeps me up all night. So I'm just doing like decaf tea and I'm just drinking tea all the time. I'm like, it's about four in the afternoon there or so or five. Yeah. It's yeah. Five in the afternoon, five 30. And so, but other than that, I'm just uh, enjoying this time with the family and getting ready to, I've got all my paperwork and I'm going to Sicily next week. Next week, next week. So it's com- it's coming up soon. And then once you get to Sicily, you're just kind of like 
there, right? I'm going to bunker down. I'm going to, I haven't had, we haven't had a place to like live where everything is like, okay, you know, we've been so, so nomadic. Right. For it's been the like past couple, couple of years. years. Yeah. Yeah. And so it'll be nice to get a place and to call that home and to just bunker down until I've got like a gym I'll train at and I've been studying the language. I mean, because it's very, the reality is it's insane what I'm doing, right? I'm going to a country. I don't speak the language. I'm about to go through at least an extrajudicial process where I'm trying to get my Italian citizenship and passport. And so I spent the last year getting all that paperwork together. And so what it basically, what it, what is, what I discovered a few years ago was that um, I am an Italian citizen under Italian law, because when my father was born, my grandfather had not yet naturalized. So it would be like if you went to another country and had a kid, right? Right. You, that kid would be American. Right. And unless you renounced your citizenship, right? Right. Before that. But once you, that kid's born to you, even if, you know, that kid stays in Belgium or wherever, that kid is still an American citizen. They just need to claim their citizenship. And so I'm going back to Italy under that type of process. I just needed to get documents all the way back to 1918, proving all of these things that, that I am related to him and my grandfather and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I, I now I'm, I've ordered the translations. I had to get the documents sent to like Washington, D.C., uh, to the secretary of state and the you know state department and get all that. I've got all everything back. And so now I'm on my way. So I'm stoked. Like I said, trying to learn another language. I'm on that app Duolingo like two hours oh, yeah. a day, you know, and uh, but I'm, I'm, it's a great app. Have you used it? Yeah, I use I when I, I worked at a uh, warehouse doing finishing when I first started the magazine and when I worked there there were a lot of Oh, that's right, in the cabinet shop, right? Yeah, that's right. There were a lot of Spanish speaking guys there, so I used Duolingo all the time so I could try to polish my poor Spanish skills and speak to them a little better. And how 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 did that go? It went okay, you know. A CSE. Yeah. Decent. I'm of the mindset that, you know, I studied Spanish like for, you know, off and on for a couple of years and got the basics of construction. And so, but the reality is for me, I knew I would never, like my brother moved to Costa Rica and married a Costa Rican mm-hmm. and became fluent. Right. Because he you, was You have to immerse yourself. Yeah, you have to immerse yourself. I, that's what I'm thinking, dude. I'm like, you know what? It's not going to, it's a life goal, but it's not going to happen until I live there. Well, so, you, you'll be speaking uh, Italian in like, Three years. Dude, it better be in friggin' sooner than three years, man. <laughs> I better be. I'm going to be because they don't speak much English in Sicily. Right. You know, you get walking around with a translation dictionary everywhere. Oh, you got your phone. It's, oh, I forgot. It's 2022. I got my phone, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, you know, my goal is to study it like insanely to where, you know, I've got flashcards already. I'm doing it, like I said, a couple hours a day. And once I get there, um, it was funny in, in London, I went to a market this morning and met a woman from Sicily and I was like trying to talk to her and I, I would, I couldn't understand anything. <laughs> so it is truly, truly, I am starting as a white belt, you know, just to try and figure it out, but I'm stoked, man. It's uh, I'm sure at times it'll be like, what in the hell am I doing here? But you know, 
it's uh i'm up for the challenge so i'm, I'm really pumped to uh i like things like that. what about a potential of war in europe how are you feeling about that not that in italy's like in any way involved at this point except they're a NATO power, I think. No, but I, I think that, that you're absolutely right. I don't think anybody is not going to be involved if this thing goes down, right? I mean, I think Italy, any, any country of the EU, if they get pulled into it, the entire, you know, you've got NATO, you've got the EU. I mean, they are all going to be involved. And the United States is going to be involved. Yeah, I just too. double-checked Italy as part of NATO. I thought, I just, you know, who could remember every fact? <laughs> I know, right? No, I mean, United States, you know, Italy. I mean, I I don't see how in the world, if that does happen, that I'm not in, any, in some way pulled into it, you know, I, at least, or Italy is. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, Italy, I didn't, yeah, I didn't uh, think you meant you personally. But Italy is, you know. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of people trying to get to Ukraine so they can go fight Russians. I don't know. It's a mess. It's a mess, man. Dude, I saw that. I was listening to the BBC and they were talking about that, you know, and I was like, where, you know, you got English. Brits who are going over there to fight. It reminds me of, it reminds me of the like, George Orwell damn. back in the, the Spanish Civil War when we were talking about in the 1984 episode. Well, uh, maybe, yeah. maybe the situation will get diffused. Maybe Ukraine will just prove to be too big a pain in the ass and they'll just drop it. You know, I'm kind of starting to like let that be a hope because Ukraine is really putting up a fight. So we'll see. Well, it looks like, you know, having gone to Chechnya after the Chechen War, it looks like what's going to happen is that... I think Ukraine's in a much, 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 much stronger position than Chechnya was because no one was coming to the aid right. of Chechnya because Chechnya right. wasn't a country. They weren't a country. They were seeking just trying yeah. to get their independence. Yeah, they were seeking independence. So the rest of the world was like, yeah, we're not going to get involved in that. But this is another country. This is an independent, sovereign country. And I think the echoes of World War II are so strong and the lessons and yeah, and the lessons after Hitler just ransacked, through, we just plowed through Europe. They're like, that will never happen again. So I think they're they're trying to stop it, you know, now. And I, I think you're right. I think that at the end of the day, we're already arming. And I say we and right, all Western. Western countries. They're trying to increase the military budget by like 32 billion bucks. They're trying to increase the American defense budget, you know, and it's already way more than anybody else's budget anywhere else in the world. Our budget is like almost combined more than every other country combined. Yeah. And they're trying to increase it. First off, it looks like the Russian military has proved completely inept. And then just us continually arming. The problem is going circling back to Chechnya is it looks like they're just going to destroy the whole country. If yeah. they can't have it, they're going to destroy the whole thing. And that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that really sucks. Hopefully something will happen and the problem will solve itself. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But anyways, back to Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep you updated on the Italy thing. And, you know. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. All right. Let's get back to let's We're going back to the episode now, guys. Thanks for, uh, you know, bearing with us. So David Cronenberg, interesting subject, probably one of the most fascinating directors ever, maybe not for his personal life and everything, but because of uh, his just body of work is so interesting and controversial and, you know, shocking. So David Cronenberg is a Canadian guy, Jewish Canadian. He was born in 1943 and he grew up reading uh, science fiction magazines. And that's sort sort of where he got his imagination from, or like what allowed his imagination to develop. He's pretty public about this. The magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Galaxy, astounding. A lot of magazines 
that were influential to the development of Infinite Worlds. So Cronenberg and I at very least have that one thing in common. Well, there's one other thing too coming up that I will mention. And when he was reading these magazines, you know, there's that real trippy art in those magazines that obviously gave him some influence. But, you know, he loved the writing. He liked Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov. He was a big fan of comic books. He liked pretty much every kind of comic book, even superhero stuff. He's a superhero fan. So very relatable to myself. But the thing that is most relatable to me is that he considers his main science fiction influence to be Philip K. Dick. And wow. And, you know, I, I do as well. And going back and watching all these movies, and, you know, I've seen several of these movies before, but watching them again, especially the movies that he wrote, the echoes of Philip K. Dick storytelling are in there so hard. I like, I just watched Videodrome again last night with my wife. That's probably the fourth time I've seen it. And I was thinking, you know, this kind of is like a Philip K. Dick story in a lot of ways. And I actually thought the same thing the last time I watched Existence, but we'll get to that when we get to those things. So he decided he wanted to be an independent filmmaker and really just did it. He just went for it, you know, write, direct, and edit his own movies. And that's kind of the way he's worked for his entire career. He is a full-on independent artist. And again, hats off to that. I love it. I love independent filmmakers. And he is like the king of independent filmmaking. And well, maybe not. I don't know if you want to call him the king, but independent is a giant part of his brand. Yeah. I I was thinking like Roger Corman, but, you know, as I watched some of these movies, I was like, he's like this awesome version of yeah. Roger Corman, you know? Yeah, he's, it's like if Roger Corman <laughs> made really, really good movies and really, yes. really, especially interesting visual effects, especially the scary stuff. Okay, so let's uh, let's go through his movies kind of like in order, I guess, in a way, and then we'll stop at the ones that we, we decided we were going to talk about and kind of expound on those a little bit more. One thing I, w- I want to say that as I watched, and I think you'll find this interesting, as I watched you know, Videodrome, and I watched uh, a couple of the other movies. One thing that I, that struck me was I was like, I cannot believe like how transgressive and freaking uh, subversive his movies mm. are, but oh, especially yes. that label transgressive. And I thought immediately, this reminds me of William Burroughs, right? Oh, this, yeah. And, and I was like, this is like, I love... The writing, I know. And see, I didn't know that. And so, and 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 so, when I started looking into Cronenberg, and he was very, like you're saying, he was very much into writing, and at one point had considered becoming a writer before he decided to become a filmmaker. And who was he into? Of course, he was into William Burroughs and J.G. Ballard. Oh yeah. And so you're talking about two very, very transgressive writers, and. I was very into J.G. Ballard because for a long time, I was just a fanatic for Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club. And Chuck Palahniuk, like, pointed everything at J.G. Ballard. I mean, everybody was like, it's Fight Club is so transgressive. And, you know, Chuck Palahniuk's writing, a lot of it is like that, Um, especially like you read Survivor or you read Fight Mm -hmm. Club. I mean, it is just... I'm a fan of Survivor. Yeah, right? Isn't that... Dude, think about Survivor, man. It's about someone who... It starts out with someone hijacking a plane, right? And, and right after 9-11. That probably would have been made into a movie if it wasn't for 9-11. But you also look at the anti-capitalist screed of Fight Club 
And I, that's, I think, why I love Fight Club so freaking much, right? Um, is because it is, it is, what I like about Fight Club and Chuck Palahniuk is that you're talking about a, a, a very, very, like when I, I think I've talked about this before. I like, like, there was a writer named Tom Jones and I love like his writing because it's very like masculine. If I want to read that kind of a writer, then I go to like Tom Jones. If I want to read like a fem- very feminine, not feminine, but more of that point of view than like Margaret Atwood or Ursula K. Le Guin. But Chuck Palahniuk is what, what I think is so amazing is that a lot of bros like love the movie of Fight Club and everything, but Chuck Palahniuk is a gay, homosexual, overly homosexual man. And I love how transgressive that in and of itself, him, the one writing the book Fight Club is, you know? Right. And, and so I, I, that thread for me, I loved to discover that about Cronenberg, that he was so influenced by Naked Lunch and William Burroughs and also J.G. Ballard in Crash. So anyways, I just wanted to throw that out there. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and to respond to that, I think being sort of uh, an iconoclast, you know, is bred into the fiber of his being. Uh, like the way those those writers you mentioned and, you know, Philip K. Dick and a lot of his influences were like that. And very few people make movies that they know are going to be shocking to people, you know? Yeah. There are a few out there, obviously, but he was one of the first that was doing that as like a career hallmark. And it really starts really early with him. Yeah, and I I think that's a great point because when you look at something like J.G. Ballard, when he's writing about a cult of people that are crashing cars in his book Crash, you know, he knew that was going to be shocking. You know, William Burroughs, you know, they it wasn't just life imitating art and all that. He knew that naked lunch was going to rock people's worlds mentally. For sure. You know? Absolutely. So and, he wasn't trying to be Hemingway, right? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so Cronenberg starts with a couple of very, 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 very low budget movies. And I'm talking like self-produced movies almost called Stereo and Crimes of the Future in 1969 and 19. 19- That's how long he's been doing this since the 60s. Wow. Uh, 1969 and 1970. And I have unfortunately still been unable to see either of those movies. I've tried, but I cannot find them. But really? you know, if you guys if you guys have some hints on where I could find those movies to watch, hit me up. Okay. So the first movie, his earliest movie that I was able to see is Shivers. And Shivers is what you're talking about subversive, man. It is without question that. And basically the plot of Shivers is that a sort of parasitic a uh, worm slug type thing starts infecting people at this upscale apartment complex. And when they become infected, they become psychosexual and they start attacking one another, both raping each other and also at the same time enjoying sex too. They become like sex crazed and it eventually takes over this whole building. And it was one of the most controversial films in Canadian history, but it made a million bucks in Canada. And at the time, it was one of the highest grossing Canadian films of all time. You know, it was distributed only in Canada. I only had a budget of $179,000, made a million bucks. And part of it was because it had all that hypersexuality, hyperviolence in it. And it shocked people. It shocked people a lot. But at the time, it was sort of misunderstood by critics because it's such chaos and such hypersexualized chaos at the time, people were like, okay, this is just meant as shock value. There's no message behind this. But 
everything that Cronenberg ends up doing in his career, when you look back at it retrospectively, everything is his reaction to different elements of society. And I think this had a lot to do with sexual repression. Mm. Okay, so after he makes that movie, he, he makes another movie called Rabid. And this is another equally messed up movie. And this involves a woman getting into an accident and then having to have a skin graft. And they have like a genetically modified skin graft. And when they give it to her, they put it on her abdomen. And then she develops like a stinger that comes out of her armpit that sucks human blood. And those people turn into like zombies, basically. And she creates like a zombie riot in Montreal. (laughs) (laughs) And it's... It's a really wild movie. It's a lot of fun. And it's got plenty of those cool Cronenbergian body horror elements, like real early on kind of stuff. And, you know, if you haven't seen this one, it's, it's a real cool, it's all, almost just like a straight up horror movie, but it does have that science fiction element because, you know, it, it's that genetically modified surgery that led to this whole thing. So body horror, you mentioned that. That's like a hallmark of, of his movies. Ex- explain that concept. Cronenberg is pretty much the innovator, if, you don't, if not the inventor, then he's what you would probably call the innovator of body horror. And body horror, uh, I'll read you the definition they Mm -hmm. have here on Wikipedia. Grotesque and psychologically disturbing violations of the human body is the hallmark of the genre. But usually what you're going to see is some really Uh, shocking violence to the human body, but usually in a way that provokes thought. Body horror isn't really like somebody being chopped in half. Yes, it's not slasher slasher gore, even though, you know, That stuff, in certain instances, could be qualified that way. But body horror really has a psychological slant to it, and it usually is something that's unexplained, like a mutation of some kind or that kind of thing. I think that's what it implies when you talk about body horror, Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes also called biological horror, according to Wikipedia, although I've never heard anyone say that. And that's really been... Dude, you know what's crazy, man, is I never, like, understood... Like how some people have like a fascination, like with body horror. Oh man. Until, because I know some people do. It's like almost, it's a genre clearly, right? Sure. And people like to watch, people will watch on T on, on YouTube, they'll watch surgeries. Yeah. Like that is a whole freaking like little cult subculture of people that are so into that and watch people pick things off their face and do like different shit like that. It wasn't until I had surgery that I'm like, oh, my God, like it, it almost makes you like contemplate, you know, or obsess on like what it means to even be alive and be healthy and what's inside of me. And you know what I mean? Like things like that. It's like so trippy. Trippy is definitely an element to body horror, you know, that I think Cronenberg really relies on. And I think it comes from that Philip K. Dick influence, which we'll get into a little bit more here in a little while. Well, did they ever, did anything ever come up like in your research of why or what spurred him on into like gravitating towards this being, you know, I mean, obviously it's something that he also trips out. Actually, on. there is a few things. One of them, which is maybe surprising to a lot of people are two Disney movies that he uh, talks about being primary influences on the way he looks at humor. They were Bambi, most especially the scene where Bambi's mother is killed. What? And oh no way! Yeah, and that's a, that had a huge impact on how he defined horror, and also Dumbo. And at first, I thought Dumbo, but then I remembered that there are a ton of pretty scary and really trippy scenes in Dumbo, where Dumbo's 
kind of tripping. Yeah. And his, his body's like coming apart and distorting. And Oh, yes. So I assume that's what he means when he refers to that movie. But yeah, that's two of the reasons. So, you know, surely he saw those movies at a very young age. And that had a pretty profound effect on him going forward. And, you know, also from reading different things, obviously, you know, he read, read a lot of comic books, read a lot of horror magazines and sci-fi magazines. And that kind of like body horror thing did appear in the pages of comics before it was appearing on film. You know, uh, you were going to see that kind of thing happen more in comics. You know, Who Goes There probably came out in the late 40s, I think. So, you know, that would have been around the time he was a young man that he could have read that or stories like that. Which, you know, I, don't, I can't say, speak to which one specifically he was reading. But okay, so then in 1979, he made a movie called Fast Company, which is like a race car movie. And I've never seen it. I've never seen this movie. It's supposed to be an action movie. It's not really listed as a horror movie or anything like that. But that kind of makes me want to watch it more. Um, because now I'm like, oh, what, yeah. what's going on with this movie that he made in the rant, in, like in the middle of making only body horror movies? And then okay, the same year he made The Brood, which I recommended that you watch in the last episode, but. That is a really messed up movie, man. And I don't want to give too much away about it, but it's sort of about mothers when they uh, become psychotic. I guess the trope of like the woman driving her children into a lake or the woman strangling her kids, you know, because she's had like a psychotic break. And it's not that exactly, but it definitely plays on that. You know, it's one of those things like when I, you know, raising my daughter and watching all the Disney movies, almost every single Disney movie, if you think about it, (laughs) the mother dies at the beginning, right? One parent or both parents are killed. I mean, they are absolutely morbid. You know, my my daughter from watching a, a, a Disney movie had all of a sudden developed a fear of death at six years old where she realized, oh, my. And that's when I, I, I was like, wait a minute. They in Disney and very in, in, in a lot of ways, like incorporates horror tropes into their For movies sure. with kids. Right. The stepmother is going to beat the kids and going to starve them and try and kill them and murder. Yeah, them there are and- definitely horror elements <laughs> in a lot of this movies, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. You know. OK, so that's the 70s. That kind of covers the 70s for Cronenberg. And up until that point, Cronenberg mm-hmm. was really considered to be he flew under the radar a lot. Most of his movies were only released in Canada. He was definitely not a household name by any means. In the 80s is definitely where he became a household name. And his first film in the 80s is 1981 Scanners, which I got to rewatch this week again with my wife. And God damn, is that an awesome movie? (laughs) Dude, I I think, you know, you know, you got to look, you have to consider and almost embrace the fact that it is a lower budget movie, you know, and, and, you know. But aside from that, the writing and just the structure of the story, to me, is one. There are so many reasons why it's one of my favorite movies. Um, and But I love the simple setup, right? You've got what ostensibly becomes, you know, you've got a, a good guy and a bad guy, and they both have these telekinetic abilities, right? right? That's why they're called scanners. And they go to battle with each other. But what I loved about it was how it was so reminiscent of Stranger Things, just like Firestarter, right? Where you've got these hippies, you know, after Watergate, we're like, man, we can't trust corporations. We can't trust the government. They're going to poison us. They're going to do. And it was kind of that thing, right? It was like the laying the groundwork well, for Stranger yeah, absolutely. Things. You know, Stranger Things makes no bones about its influences from the, the these 80s movies. But absolutely. And, you know, what's really funny about this is I was talking to my wife and uh, I decided 
that my next book is going to be, you know, a tribute, you know, in my version of this plot. Because I love these plots, man. I love Firestarter. I, they, Me they're, too. They're really cool. Uh, it's, you know, uh. X-Men is like that. And there's a really great one called More Than Human by Theodore Sturgeon. And so just the idea of people existing with extra sensory abilities just kind of in the midst of regular people is a really cool and fascinating concept and I like how much it's explored. Okay, so another thing that I really wanted to talk about with Scanners is it's really where you start to see his messages come through, I think, more clearly. And I think that's what led to his success in the 80s, his more widespread acclaim is because one thing you can definitely see when you watch Scanners is that there's a really big anti-corporatist message. Yes, because basically the bad guys in this movie, uh, even though, you know, there's a struggle between these two characters and, you know, several other characters, but mostly between these two characters. But the real bad guys in the movie are the pharmaceutical companies and the weapon manufacturers. Yes. You know, working hand in hand. And yes, it smacks of, like you said, like that paranoia that people had towards, it still have and should have, you know, and what's happening there eventually leads to people thinking that Bill Gates is giving us microchips. So, you know, it definitely yeah. flies off the rails at some point. X-Files. Yeah, the X-Files. Very, but yeah, like you said, very X-Files. Philip K. Dick, very paranoia, what's going on, yep. trippy. One of my favorite things about rewatching it is I love mixed media inside of movies. And I loved how there was that little black and white film of the villain and how he's talking about, he's got that piece of tape on his eye and he's talking about, it's like an interview tape. And I love when yes. they embed yes. those kind of things, that mixed media in there. And also when they go to the artist's house and they're at the art, first in the art gallery and they go. The, the art gallery is amazing. Yes. <laughs> so he's using. It really is. Every piece in there is just like, and I have to assume that Cronenberg made those pieces themselves or at least picked them out. Yes. Because he's so particular about the way his movies are filmed. And they're incredible pieces of installation art. And and they're echoing that theme of body horror, right? Every single one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then when they go to the artist's barn and he goes in and they go inside the big, the massive head in the barn and they have the dialogue in there. Fuck, that was so cool. Yeah, they're inside. It is one of my favorite scenes because it's a story about people that can control people by entering their brains. And then they're having a discussion inside of a big, you know, wooden sculpture of a head how rad is that dude that is it's so interesting creative for having a low budget and saying you know what we can't do this we don't have cgi but we can freaking use art in there yeah i think scanners is definitely one of my favorite movies very cool okay so next next up on the list in 1983 that's the year i was born by the way he had Videodrome and The Dead Zone. I'm going to go ahead and talk about Dead Zone first, just to, uh, I, I, even though it was released after Videodrome, mm-hmm. but I'm going to talk about it first just to kind of get it out of the way because it's a great movie. It's a really cool version of a Stephen King book. It stays pretty damn true to the book as well. Has a great performance by Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen. Both of them are amazing in that movie, yeah. Yeah, they're both terrific in that movie. Oh, and um, Tom Skerritt plays an excellent character in that movie too. So it's a great movie, but... It doesn't have much in the way of Cronenberg's body horror elements no. going on in it. Because, you know, there's not much of that in the book. So it would have been, you know, I feel like out of line to add his elements to like what is supposed to be an adaptation of the book. But it's a great movie. Still, I think it's fantastic. So check that one out. And Christopher Walken in his prime. I mean, that was, he. Oh, yeah. He was young Christopher Walken, man. <laughs> okay, so. 
the movie that I really want to talk about from 1983 is Videodrome. And first of all, I want to stop and just give a shout out to Videodrome Atlanta, Atlanta's only remaining video store uh, for years and years and years of enlightenment. The mats at Videodrome, love you guys. So many nights I've spent wandering around looking at movies and being advised by you guys about all the different avenues, Stuart Gordon movies and Cronenberg and everything. So, you know, oh, you guys a debt of gratitude for sure. Okay, so Videodrome is a straight up techno babble, man. It is one of the strangest and denser, wilder movies I've ever seen. And it basically is about, in my opinion, if I had to consider about what it's about, it's about the consumption of toxic media. And humans, especially the 20th and 21st century humans, growing addiction to that kind of media. And it stars James Woods as a uh, TV executive running a shitbag TV station that profits on showing like smut and violence. And Blondie, Deborah Harry, as a uh, radio personality that tries to advise people about their lives, kind of like a suicide prevention radio host. And they get mixed up with this thing called Videodrome. And Videodrome is a signal that is sent out over videotapes that triggers mind control and violent hallucinations and basically sends you into a hallucinatory world. And this one is, like I said, watching it again, it reminds me so much of so many Philip K. Dick stories and that theme of subjective reality. And it's really the first of his movies that hits really hard on that idea. And he, he kind of keeps that as a theme in his movies going forward. But Videodrome has some incredible Cronenbergian body horror moments. Lots of them. The videotape. Are you kidding uh, the me? Whole, the body videotape, oh dude. That's one the of the coolest videotape. things I've ever seen. I never saw the movie until you pushed me to see it. And I was like, what am I watching? Is this not the coolest thing <laughs> I've ever, the torso tape player? It is definitely, his. it is one of the most uncomfortable moments of all time when he puts the gun in his abdomen <laughs> and then the gun grows, <laughs> grows into part of his arm. It is, it is certainly one of the most, and there's also some really cool practical effects too. Whatever effect they use to blow out the television screen that Blondie is appearing on is a practical effect and it looks really, really cool. And Like I said, I this movie reminded me, you know, when, when I watched it, I was like, this is what William Burroughs was trying to do. At least in my mind, what I wanted Naked Lunch to be. And it, it's for it, yeah. Naked Lunch is almost unreadable, but you know, uh, but for <laughs> me, I just, I tried so many times to read that book. I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it. So, but this to me, when I saw video drama, I'm like, oh no, this is what I wanted Naked Lunch to be. It is insanity, hallucinatory madness. Hallucinatory madness. And it's a lot like Philip K. Dick too. You, you definitely uh, get that sort of world where the characters having trouble determining whether or not their events going around them are a hallucination or it's, you know, their real life. And th this movie does it extremely well. And like you said, yeah, absolutely with Naked Lunch as well and Burroughs as well. You know, we're both coming at it from different backgrounds, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Scanners is the movie that put Cronenberg on the map, especially the head exploding scene. But Videodrome in the Dead Zone coming out in the same year is what made Cronenberg a household name. You know, because Videodrome was its own shocking, wild self. And The Dead Zone was a successful adaptation of a successful novel. And coming out in the same year, you know, kind of legitimized Cronenberg 
where a lot of people before this had looked at him as a B-movie director yeah, or a shock artist mm-hmm. and nothing more than that. He became legitimized in that year, in my opinion. I agree. Dead Zone is a very, very conventional, good genre Stephen right. King movie. And yeah, I think you could watch- Science it. fiction yeah. thriller. And you could watch it and not necessarily say, no, that it was a Cronenberg movie. You know, absolutely. You know, I think that's the case of Fast Company, which came out the same year as The Brood. But again, I haven't seen that one, the race car movie, but I I will eventually watch it. Okay, so next up on the list, 1986 comes The Fly. And this is where you really start to see his early science fiction influence really shine through, because this is a remake of 1950s film called The Fly. This is also what I would say is his most straightforward science fiction film up to this point. Although body horror becomes an element in the second half of the movie, the plot is pretty much entirely science fiction. Yeah. And if you've never seen The Fly, first of all, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, come on, man. Go, go watch The Fly like right now. Unless you really hate body horror. But why would you be listening to Yeah, one of the greatest movies. <laughs> I remember the first time I watched it. The Fly was like my first real encounter. Aside from, I don't think there was all that as much body horror in scanners. But when I saw the fly, that was like my first, like where someone's kind of obsessing on their own body because he, spoiler, he becomes a fly and starts to metamorphose. It morphosizes into- The the plot is is that he creates a transporter, a matter transporter that can move things from one place to another. And he accidentally enters a matter transporter with a fly and then their DNA becomes combined. And then he starts to slowly transform into a- mucus covered a fly i guess but it's not it's not really a fly it's like a disgusting mutant that has some fly-like characteristics yes oh god one of the reasons i like this movie so much is because in the original film he ends up with like a fly head and a human body although scary in some ways it's also like okay so like this matter transporter just like decided this was a perfect little point to combine their bodies together or whatever and, you know, and so it's kind of got some eye rolling going on there. But this movie really doesn't do that. It's just like, okay, what would it be like if their DNA really did start mixing? What might show up? It wouldn't look like a fly, but it wouldn't look like a person either. And the creature effect that they capture in this movie, without question, is one of the most ghastly and uh, memorable creature effects of all time. And it really is hilarious because it's one of the most lovable actors of all time who is in like incredible athletic shape when this movie is made. He's in his prime too. Jeff Goldblum is in his prime. Yeah, he's in like awesome shape. He looks like a gymnast in this movie. He even does some gymnastics in this movie actually. And he's Jeff Goldblum, so he's so lovable even then. And watching him get turned from that character to this disgusting creature is a really, it's really shocking and hard to watch. It's gnar. And the difference, I think, is that this was the perfect vehicle for Cronenberg to bring the body horror to the masses. Because Videodrome, as cool as it is, is still kind of niche, niche, weird, you know, transgressive. But this was like, no, all of this, none of this is gratuitous because he's undergoing this change because of this based in science you know, experiment that he did. And, oh man, it is, that's a masterwork. And it killed it at the box office for for that time. That was the other thing is, is this was a box office hit. It made like 60 million bucks. So this was a big hit, you know, and uh, yeah, $60 million on like a $10 million budget. 
that further strengthened his like place in Hollywood. At the whole time, he's sort of doing it his way too, you know? Yeah. Oh, here we go. I just learned that this film won an Oscar for best makeup, which of course, you know, like the makeup effects in this movie are absolutely bananas. Okay. So after the fly comes dead ringers, which uh, I'll confess that I have not seen this movie, although I have wanted to. And this is a doppelganger movie. Jeremy Irons. It's so cool. I've seen it. I've seen it a long time ago. And the, uh, it's it's weird. And there's a great quote that I love from the movie. I'll never forget where it's like, we should have beauty contests for the insides of our bodies, <laughs> you know, instead of yeah, like this and- external, like focus on, you know, external beauty that we all have. It really was a window into this body horror thing and, and just more of a psychological understanding of that. Well, one thing I really like about the fact that this was his next project after the fly is that it really affirmed that he, David Cronenberg had no interest in just continuing to make movies for the masses. Yeah. And that, you know, he, he was like dead set on doing things his way because Dead Ringers, it was never, nobody ever thought that this movie was going to be a smash hit and there's no way. And then he decides to make a film adaptation of Naked Lunch next in 1991. That's a really good point because you're looking at someone as far as his trajectory where he could have gone on to do a movie like Jurassic Park or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he established himself with The Fly and you're right. Then you go into Dead Ringers and then the the freaking Naked Lunch. And Naked Lunch was a bomb, was a huge bomb. It had an $18 million budget and made 2 million bucks. So it lost, you know, 15 or 16 million bucks because it's, like you said, it's based on some really dense almost incomprehensible source material. And the movie itself is straight up bizarre. Surreal is the word I would think I would use. It's, it's surrealism. Yeah. But it just goes to show you that he stayed on that path of just wanting to do what he wanted to do. Very David Lynch in that respect, right? Where, you know, he's like, I'm doing my shit. <laughs> you know, this is me and I'm doing it. And, you know, he made an adaptation of Madam Butterfly after that which I have never seen. And then in 1996, he made Crash. Mm-hmm. You were the J.G. Ballard fan. So yeah, I'm this. such a J.G. Ballard fan. It, and it's it's the basic synopsis of the movie is there's like a cult of people that are so obsessed with car crashes and the sexuality of car crashes and injuries. And it's the body horror thing with car crashes and the sexualization of it. When they uh, showed the movie at Cannes, I think uh, Francis Ford Coppola like walked out and was like, absolutely not. We will not. This is wrong. <laughs> You're going to be encouraging people to go around and stage car crashes and all this shit. And it ended up winning, I think, a jury prize. They awarded him a special jury prize. Not even It's a award they don't even get out every year. So the jury convened and gave him a special prize for Crash. Yeah, it was a cool movie. I don't necessarily know. I don't know if everyone's going to like it. It's, it's as weird as the book is weird, you know. J.G. Ballard is a tripper. And uh, and so, you know, if you're into like that kind of thing, I recommend people see it just to watch it. But the, the idea of, you know, recreating and they didn't just recreate car crashes; They recreated like famous car crashes. Right. You know, with right. James Dean and being beheaded. And it was freaking pretty. It's pretty cool, man. It's a wild story. So after Crash in 1999, comes what I consider to be uh, one of his masterpieces, Existence. And Existence, in a lot of ways, tells the same story 
as Videodrome in a different way. At very least, it's a warning about these huge companies having such a huge influence on the reality around you. And while in Videodrome, it's far, or, I'm sorry, scan, I was saying Videodrome, I meant scanners, where it's a, uh, I guess in a way, Videodrome too, but I was trying to describe scanners, where it's pharmaceutical companies and weapons manufacturers. Mm. In Existence, the villains are replaced with video game companies and programmers. And how virtual reality, which was just like an idea more or less at the, at the time in 1999, had so much inherent danger to our own realities, to understanding and navigating our own realities. And now that it's 2022 and like the metaverse is a thing and everything is an NFT and it's common web three, you know, so we're right on the verge of this existence reality coming into focus. So I consider it one of those more prescient movies too. Absolutely. I, I, I was reading a critique of Web 3.0 because I was like, what is Web 3.0? And basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, it talks about the decentralization. It's something that sounds like it could be really cool, right? Instead of YouTube, you have decentralized, right. you know, servers like, you know, that's what Bitcoin basically is, right? Is it's all decentralized. No one's controlling it. And but I read a critique and uh, the author was talking about that's all nonsense. It is already being they're investing so much money, big corporations in Web 3.0 that uh, they're going to control it all. There will be nothing. They will control every aspect of it and they will control, therefore, every aspect of our lives. And I, I think you're right. I think it is so prescient because, you know, in 1999, there was no Facebook. Right. And right. by 2016, Facebook was responsible for electing a president. I mean, that's the reality of it. You know, Facebook was responsible mm-hmm. for disseminating mm-hmm. so much bullshit and disinformation. We had an insurrection in the United States of America. Yep. And so I think I think the danger has already fucking been proven. Yeah. And the only thing that's different is that it's just not virtual reality yet. But hey, Metaverse, Facebook is investing billions into billions. Yeah, into what this VR. And so is Apple. And so is every one of these corporations. So it's hard to think that we're not going to be there, you know, and be dealing with the same shit. Even Infinite Worlds, we're creating a virtual reality gallery right now. So, you know, I'm not immune from the sea change either. You know, I'm going that same direction. We're all going there. I mean, that's, that's (laughs) all you could do is really follow the world. I mean, you can be an iconoclast to a degree, but it's hard to, it's hard to be Ted Kaczynski (laughs) and and, and unplug and live in a cabin and just send pipe bombs, (laughs) mailbox bombs. Yeah. It's hard to live that way. Okay, so after Existence, Cronenberg, he made a movie called Spider, which I've never seen. Yeah, I've never seen that either. And that's a psychological thriller, but I don't know too much about it. It kind of failed in the box office too, but it's about schizophrenia. So uh, I might be interested in that one because I imagine there's some Philip K. Dick elements to that one as well. Yeah. Okay, but then after that, he started making straightforward dramas that had, although they had some body horror elements, they really stopped having any sort of science fiction elements to them. Uh, he made kind of the Viggo Mortensen movies, you might call them, A History of Violence and Eastern Promises and A Dangerous Method. And I don't know if you've seen any of these movies. Oh, yeah. History of Violence is based on a graphic novel. That is an amazing right. movie, man. Excellent movie. Viggo Mortensen, William Hurt. And then Eastern Promises, isn't that the one that has like the greatest fight scene ever? 
Yeah, that is the greatest fight scene I've ever seen. Uh, the <laughs> naked sauna fight scene, I yeah. assume, is what you're talking about. Yes. The knife fight. Yes. <laughs> I like that one because it's, at oh. least in some, some ways, realistic. Trying to get one guy fighting off two knife-wielding dudes naked, it's hard to make it super realistic, but he did a pretty good job of that. The stabbing scenes during that equate to some of the body horror you're going to see in that movie. But that character that he Vigo plays in Eastern Promises is one of the coolest characters oh, ever, dude. So cool. He's so awesome. I, I, I think that those two movies just make, you know, when you really sit back and consider his body of work, you, that's where I say he's a genius because he's done so many things so well, you know. Because yeah. those two movies yeah. are amazing drama thrillers, you know, and that's not easy to do. There's nothing fantastic about those movies, you know. They're very based in our reality and don't really play into any of those, you know, themes that we've talked about up until this episode. No, it's uh, it's amazing, amazing. Now I saw after that he did a movie. What was it? Cosmopolis. Cosmopolis with Robert Pattinson. And this is a really interesting movie too. It definitely gets back into the ideas of subversiveness they're very subversive movies and they're very anti it feels very anti-capitalist you know that i think that is the theme of the movie because it's really about people communicating solely through capitalism like using it as their means of communication and living entirely as if capitalism is the only reality it's kind of a hard to watch movie because there's a lot of financial speech going on in the movie and a lot of like oh yeah wilted speech is kind of hard to follow at some parts i had to rewatch it with the subtitles on to try to get a better handle on it okay but it's a pretty dark and very depressing movie and it's kind of about a guy who exists in this world sort of spiraling into madness you know depression and he's driving around in his limo the whole time right yes and it's based on a book by don delillo and i've never read this book oh, i love don delillo but i have read white noise by don delillo and i loved it me too it's a great book. It also follows those same themes of trusting uh, white noise does. I'm not speaking about uh, Cosmopolis because I haven't read it, but it definitely follows those themes of like not trusting the government, like the paranoia. And it, it revolves around the, that book, at least revolves around a purported chemical spill of some kind or biological weapon or gaseous weapon of some kind spilling from a train wreck nearby. And then the people of a town having to be evacuated because of it. But whether or not the chemical spill actually took place or the airborne toxic event, which they call it the book, actually occurred is sort of open to question in the book. And in that sense, it definitely fits into that Cronenbergian, like you said, transgressive. No, very cerebral, you know. That's what's ama amazing about him. And I think that's why he gravitates towards those books. Well, absolutely. You know, uh, definitely a product of that kind of thinking without question. And then coming up next, he's got a movie called Crimes of the Future, which I don't know much about. He actually made a movie called Crimes of the Future in 1970, which I haven't had an opportunity to see. What? Is it the same movie? No, it's not. It's got a different plot. So he, deci he decided <laughs> to use the same title again, but with a different movie. He reclaimed his title which I guess the idea to me, I haven't seen either movie, so this is pure speculation, but my thinking is that it's like what the phrase crimes of the future meant to him 50 years ago and what it means to him now. Ah. Because yeah. they're being made 52 years apart. Wow. And Vigo Mortensen too. And Kristen Stewart, I, I saw. That's, that should be awesome. And one other thing I wanted to mention is that his whole career since The Brood in 1979 all of his films have been scored by Howard Shore, you know, who did the Lord of the Rings movies and lots of other very famous movies, who's also a Canadian. And the scores of his movies are awesome, always. So shout out to Howard Shore for ruling really hard at making music. 
<laughs> so cool, man. So cool. Oh, one other tidbit I like to do. He does some acting here and there a lot of times in his own movies, but he's in movies that other directors make from time to time too. But one of them is a movie called Nightbreed that Wes Craven directed. And it's about oh, that's right. subhuman sort of like monster creatures living uh, like in the shadows. But one of the characters is a serial murderer named Philip K. Decker. And that is played by David Cronenberg. Oh, that's awesome. You know, which definitely is a shout out to Philip K. Dick, obviously, and probably to Deckard, the character from Blade Runner or Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Okay, so uh, I think we've pretty much covered Cronenberg in this episode. Guys, it's really hard to... I'm realizing after doing this episode that it's kind of hard to talk about Cronenberg because he's such a visual artist. Um, And, you know, if you're not familiar with his body of work, you really have to go watch these things to get a sense of what he's like but it's it's like you can't pull your eyes away even though it disgusts you in pretty much all of his movies even history of violence and eastern promises i recommend that everybody go on right now go on youtube and just search for the torso tape player oh man uh, from videodrome and it's a three minute clip and you will get to see the best of the best of Cronenberg. That will like your eyes will just start to water watching that. It's so cool, man. Oh my goodness. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the highlight of his uh, body horror is that that one freaking scene. If I could give one recommendation, obviously, you know, talking about someone like Cronenberg is is tough because you know you've got a body of work that it you know over right. decades. And I, there aren't many directors who have this kind of a filmography. So if I could give my recommendation, I would give first Scanners just because it's so cool and just Stranger mm-hmm. Things. But then fun. It's really fun to watch. And it's fast. It's short and fast paced. Yeah, too. very cool. And The Fly. I mean, how do you know? I think The Fly is like yeah. it. That's where he hit his. I'm going to assume that a lot of you have seen The Fly. So my recommendations... Everything he said is they're great recommendations, obviously. But I would recommend Videodrome if you haven't seen it. You've got to watch Videodrome. It is so wild. And Existems, especially for the meat bone gun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's also, like I said, it's very prescient. If you can watch it in 2022 and not think, damn, he made this in 1999, you know, definitely uh, stirs up some feelings for sure. Cool, man. That was a fun episode. Oh, it was so like awesome, that. man. It was so great. So great when we find something that we go through that reminds me of how much I love sci-fi. And that's what this was. And so uh, I think we had a very high, high standard with this one. What are we going to do next? Well, we talked about doing Isaac Asimov. I, I think you know we should mix in some of the classic writers in there as well. I think we should do Isaac Asimov and then Ursula K. Le Guin. Okay. Um, like talk about them, like specifically their backgrounds and all that stuff. All right. Let's do, do it. Think? Yeah. I think, I think let's do like Asimov and then because we can watch, I don't know if you've seen foundation yet. I've seen it. Um, we could talk about the new series. Well, I've read the book, but I haven't, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the series. Well, watch I, watch, it, Apple TV watch a couple of them, you know, if you can find them. Well, I don't have Apple TV, so I don't know if I want to pay for streaming <laughs> service. But. I'll, I'll share my password with you and then you can watch sweet. it. Sweet. <laughs> and then at least watch a couple episodes and we'll do that. And then maybe we go to, let's do some video, like a, some film after that. And then we'll go to uh, yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin and go back to books. 
We've talked about Ursula quite a few times already in our recommendations episodes, but you know, it'd be cool to like get her background and talk about her universes and all that stuff. Uh, um, all right, cool. Perfect. Sounds like good, man. Well, uh, I don't know if we'll be able to record before you head to Italy, so hopefully you have a good connection there. I, I will. I don't think I'll be anywhere where I'm not going to. That sounds great. All right, brother. Thanks so much, man. All right, man. Peace. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.